In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A lot of my favorite Christmas memories from growing up wrap around one single event, one single tradition that we had, still have as a family. These aren't the only positive Christmas memories that I have, but a lot of them come from this one tradition. And it's a tradition that our family had growing up called Christmas in the Woods. I may have told some of you about this. If I've already told you about this, let's just all pretend like this is the first time we're hearing it and it's going to be amazing, okay? But my grandma lived um, in a log cabin in the middle of acres of woods in Trimble County. And we would go up there every December. We're invited to go up there. And we would get up there. And what you did when you got up there for Christmas in the woods is the woods were all decked out in Christmas decorations. There was tinsel hung in the trees and ornaments and all kinds of cool stuff. And you would spend the day walking around the woods finding presents. But as you found the presents, the presents were not from my grandma. The presents were from, you'd pick one up and it would say, from Mr. and Miss Squirrel. You'd pick another present up and it would say, from the deer family. You'd pick another present up and it would say, from the baddest bullfrog in the pond. His presents were usually a little inappropriate, but that was just kind of my grandma's way of getting us things like whoopee cushions and things like this that she would get us. But before any of that could happen, the first thing you had to find was the map. You had to find the map of the woods that showed where all the presents were. So the very first thing you did when you showed up is you had to search all around her cabin for the map. Because without the map, there's no presents. And that's what we were all there for, right? The presents. So you'd hunt for the map, and when you found it and you, un- you unrolled it on the map, you'd see this layout of her property. You would see the creek and her cabin and a couple ponds and these different landmarks that were on her property. And all over the map were these little red X's. And those little red X's were all the spots where the presents were, where the jackpot was that you were trying to find. And when you unrolled that map, you could see the whole goal of the day. Get to all these spots, find all these presents, open them up, have a great time at Christmas in the Woods. And when you follow a map, whether it's for Christmas in the Woods, whether it's you using your GPS on your phone to get somewhere, you have two different experiences going on there. The two different experiences you have are the bird's eye view of the map where you can see the whole journey, the whole goal, and the on the ground view of where you are at that moment. Both of those things are happening at the same time. So as we were trying to navigate Christmas in the woods, there'd be that one present that was just hid in a tricky spot that you could not find it. It was tucked in a tree or under this rock or wherever it was. And so you would have to use the map, note the landmarks, where it was so you can find it. In both points of view, the big picture and the on the ground ground view are helpful. You need both points of view. But what's hard about those two perspectives is that we don't get both of those perspectives in day-to-day life. We don't get the big picture bird's eye view. We just get the on the ground view where we are right now. It'd be nice to have a map that we could unroll and it shows the direction our lives could go and should go, but we aren't given that. We're given the the on the ground view and that map view, big picture view doesn't belong to us. We're not privileged with that information. That's what makes, it makes life hard when we don't know what's happening to us or we don't know why it's happening or we don't know what's going to happen. 
but the experience of the intersection of those two points of view, big picture on the ground, that's, that's where faith in the Lord is found. The difference, the, the intersection, the experience between what we see and what God sees. The intersection of what, what we are doing and what God is doing. The intersection of what we know and what God knows. As we continue through the story of Ruth this morning, the story behind the story of Christmas, we are in this story given both perspectives. We're given both of them. And one of the reasons God has given us this story in the Bible is to show us how he worked in this ordinary family's life so that we can better see how he works in our lives, so that we can better see who he is. We see their map. We're not given one for our lives. But we see their map, and through seeing their map, we're given something better for us. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you're not already there, Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be on the screen, but it's also um, in the blue pew Bible in front of you on page 222. Ruth chapter 2 on page 222. This should be pretty easy to remember there. As you're turning there, for, so, for those of y'all who didn't grab one last week, we have these copies of a, a Christmas devotional, like short little times with God and his word that we are, we're giving out. It's, it's called Finding Hope Under Bethlehem Skies. It's actually a Christmas devotional that goes through the book of Ruth, just day to day leading up to Christmas. And there's uh, some, some copies left over in our church library. So if you go out these main doors and turn to your left, you'll see our church library. And right when you walk in, feel free to grab one for you, for your family to use. Um, and I would really encourage you to, to walk through this this Christmas. And if you're stressed out, like if you're the personality like me, it's already December 4th. I can't just start this on December 4th when it has December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. It's okay. It'll be fine. Just grab it, enjoy it. I promise you'll benefit from it. But Ruth chapter 2, we're going to walk through the scenes of this story, but let's just remember what we saw from Ruth chapter 1 last week. Last week in chapter 1, we were introduced to Naomi and her family. Naomi had a husband named Elimelech, and she had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And it says, if you, if you look in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, that their lives took place, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. This was not the best time to be alive in the nation of Israel. Because as we saw last week, the days when the judges ruled was characterized by that phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Nobody was following the Lord Few people were following the Lord. Most people were following themselves. And this is the time that Naomi, her husband, and her two sons are alive. And on top of that, in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. There was no food. There was no harvest coming in. People were hungry. People were starving. So Naomi and her family leave Bethlehem, where they're from, to go to Moab. And they spend about 10 years there. And over the course of those 10 years, her husband dies and both of her sons die. Before her sons died, they both married women from Moab. One's name was Orpah, and the other's name was Ruth. And in the middle of all this difficulty, they catch word that the Lord has provided food for his people back in Bethlehem. Naomi hears about this, and she tells her daughters-in-law, we need to go back to Bethlehem because there's food there. So they begin to make the journey back, but as they're making the journey back, Naomi says, you know what, I don't think, 
the two of you should go with me. So here's what she tells him. Just look with me at chapter 1, verse 8. She tells him this and then prays a prayer over them. Chapter 1, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. And here's the prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So after that moment, there's still this back and forth, no, we're going to go, no, you should go back. And eventually Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, decides to leave and go back to Moab. But Ruth clings to Naomi. And she tells Naomi, I'm going to stay loyal to you because your people are going to be my people and your God's going to be my God. So Ruth's loyalty to Naomi is because of her newfound loyalty to God. Ruth has come to know the one true God and she's following him. And then we get to the very end of chapter 1. Here's where we ended last week. Chapter 1, verse 22. Look there with me. So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And we said that at the end of the chapter last week, there was this little hint of hope there at the end. The chapter started with a famine, but the chapter ends with the beginning of a harvest. That maybe, just maybe, God is about to work a reversal in this situation. But as we get to the end of chapter 1, we're still left with a lot of questions. We're still left with questions like, what are these women going to find when they go back to Moab, when they go back to Bethlehem? What are they going to experience there? Is it going to be what they want it to be? And if God hears and answers prayers, how's he going to answer Naomi's prayer that she prayed for her daughters-in-law? In chapter 2 that we're coming to this morning, God is inviting us to walk with Naomi and Ruth on the ground in the day-to-day while we see this big picture of God's purposes above their lives. Those two points of view will carry us through here. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Before we even get back into the story, it's almost as if the narrator comes on stage, the curtains haven't opened for act two yet, and the narrator comes out on the stage and he says, before we start this next act, I need you to know one thing. Naomi has a relative who's in this, from the same clan as her husband, his name's Boaz. Just keep that in mind as you see what happens next. It's interesting, though, because the the narrator tells us something that we would find out if we just read the story. So why does he come out and tell us this when it's something we would naturally find out? Why does he tell us ahead of time? Well, I think he tells us ahead of time so that we'll focus on Boaz when he comes and wonder how is this going to be important in what God's doing in this story, in what God is doing in these women's lives. So verse 1 saying, look for Boaz. Look for him when he comes. Pay attention to who he is and what he's like. Maybe he's going to be the answer to Naomi's prayer that she prayed back in chapter 1. He's a relative. He's part of the same clan as Naomi's late husband. They're connected by their covenant with God, so maybe he could help Naomi and Ruth. So with that little hint in mind, We dive back into the story. Chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Ruth tells Naomi she wants to go to the fields to glean, to gather to gather food, to gather grain. The fields would have been the farmland around the outside of the city of Bethlehem, different fields owned by different people. And Ruth says, I want to go out and gather among the ears of grain that's going on. Ruth and Naomi are extremely poor at this point. They need food, they need finances, they need help. And when Ruth says, I want to go to the fields, she is showing faith that the Lord is going to show his grace and favor to her. She's trusting that the people of God are going to be who God has called them to be. Because way back in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to harvest their crops in a way that would help provide for the poor, that would help provide for the needy among them. I I want you to, to hear this. You don't have to turn there. I think it'll be up on the screen, and I'll read it to you. This is from Leviticus chapter 19. Verses 9 and 10. Listen to what the Lord says for his people to do. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So he's saying don't harvest everything. Don't pick up every little bit. Verse 10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God says to his people, when you harvest your crops, don't gather every little bit that you can. Leave some there for the poor and the sojourner. And it's interesting that he ends that command with, I am the Lord your God. God's people are to be this way because of who God is. It shows us his character in some way. But but, but how is that? Well, this command gets repeated. This will also be on the screen for you in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and listen to how the Lord gives this command here in Deuteronomy 24. You're going to hear some similar language, but pay attention to what the Lord says at the end. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And then listen to this part in verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. He says at the end, remember the kindness and generosity I showed to you when I rescued you out of slavery in Egypt and show that same kindness and generosity to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Ruth was trusting God to show his kindness through his people. Even though it was a day when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth didn't have the map. She did not know how this would turn out. She did not know if this would go well for her or not. You hear, even as we go through the story, and you heard it when Trevor and Drew were reading it, the threats of danger that were existed for a woman in the fields. 
She didn't have the map. She didn't know how it would turn out, but she knew the Lord was a compassionate, kind, and loving God, and so she trusted him to provide. So there's this conversation with Naomi and Ruth at the beginning, and another conversation with Naomi and Ruth is going to bookend the end of this chapter. But in the middle, there's a different person she talks to. Let's see what happens next. Let's jump back in at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So she begins to gather the leftover grain just as the Lord had commanded his people to leave there. Then, verse 3, in the middle of verse 3, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is one of my favorite phrases in the entire story. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's as if the narrator's saying, Ruth went out to glean, and it just so happened she was in Boaz's field. She went out to gather, and wouldn't you know it, she was in Boaz's field. The narrator knows nothing just happens. But this is what it seems like from our experience. This is what it would have seemed like to Ruth's experience. She just picked a field. But this is where those two different perspectives I talk about at the, talked about at the beginning, this is where they show up. It's like seeing one event from two different angles. We see it from Ruth's perspective. She just picked a spot. Her and Naomi are desperate. They're starving. They need food. And at this point of the, of the story, she has no idea that gathering food out of Boaz's field is important. She just wants food. She probably doesn't even know who Boaz is at this point. But what's true of Ruth is true of us. We have little to no knowledge of what God is doing in and through our lives. If you're not normally in in church on a Sunday, and even if you're here every week, you don't know the exact specific reason for why God brought you here this morning. We have reasons that we come, maybe, and reasons that we don't want to come at times, but the Lord is doing something, and most of the time we're not aware of it. We can't see what he sees. We can't know what he knows. We can't see the end from the beginning. We, can't, we may know that God has a plan, but we don't know the plan for our lives. And if we were honest, there's a lot in life that just from our view seems to just happen, seems random, seems by accident. But when you look at this story from God's perspective, from the map, God is guiding her to a specific spot. The narrator, when he says this here, he wants us to to sit up and take notice. He wants us to pay attention. He's reminding us of the connection to Naomi's family. It was just a couple verses earlier, but in verse 3, he says, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The narrator says, just in case you forgot what I said in verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. He's making it obvious. He's saying, this is the guy I told you about before the story started. He, he's showing up. Ruth is in the spot. And, of course, the author knows what God is doing because the end of the story has already happened. Knowing the end allows us to look back through the story and connect the dots of what God is doing. We don't have that privilege in our own lives But the author has written the story this way to help us read the story on those two levels, the the on-the-ground human view and the bird's-eye God's view. 
It's as if the Bible is saying to us here, come up here and see how God is ruling from his throne, working out his perfect purposes, and view things in your own life and in your own time from this point of view. One author that I read this week, he said, looking at this story in this part from God's point of view is like learning to recognize God's handwriting. You know, as you spend time around people or you work with people, you begin to learn their handwriting. Something gets passed around the office or a note that's, that's, that's your teacher's writing on the board in class. Or you show up to class and there's a different teacher's handwriting on the board and you know there's a sub and you're saying, this is what I'm talking about. We have a substitute teacher today, best day of the year. But, but you learn to recognize handwriting. And he's saying here we can learn to recognize God's handwriting. We learn this not because he's going to write the same story in the same way in our lives. But so we can recognize how he works. Because it's as we recognize how God works that we recognize who he is. So that when we're in a certain situation of life, or when life seems dark, when life seems difficult, to where we can't tell what God is doing or we can't tell why God is doing it, we still know the kind of God he is. We see here, in, in, in just the beginning of Ruth 2, God is providing for Ruth in ways she would never expect. She never predicted. And we learn that God is a kind and compassionate God who knows what we need and meets our needs. Seeing the story from these two different views, the on-the-ground view, the up-in-the-air view, it doesn't help us know exactly how, what God is doing in this unpredictable world. It doesn't give us that. But it helps us know that what is unpredictable to us is completely in his hand. It's completely predictable to him because it's part of his plan. He, God rules over every centimeter of the universe past, present, and future. And he has the same caring control over our lives as he did over Ruth's life. Let's see how this unfolds. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. It's another great line. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. I know we don't say the word behold very much. It's kind of old language. But, but the, the author saying, look, pay attention. Around the same time that Ruth is in Boaz's field, look who just happens to be coming from the city. Here he comes, Boaz. The exact same time. Pay attention. And, and I love that he says it this way because it helps us feel the surprise. It helps us feel the, the experience of what's going on. Look who's about to show up. But here's the deal. Ruth doesn't know why this matters yet, and we don't either yet at this point in the story. But we start to learn more about who Boaz is. Verse 4 again. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, this is the very first time we've met Boaz, here are the first words out of his mouth in the story, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. In the times of the judges, Whenever, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, not a lot of men talked like that. Not a lot of men were speaking the name of the Lord in joyful, obedient, faithful, worshipful ways. 
But Boaz was. The Lord, Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God, may he be with you. And his, his, his people, his workers greet him. The Lord bless you. Boaz learns through some conversations more about who Ruth is. And then he says this to Ruth. Let's jump down to verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that, you, that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So he's, he's protecting Ruth. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth is well aware she has no rights in this situation. She's not even from Israel. She does not work for Boaz, but Boaz is showing her great kindness and compassion. And then Boaz says something really significant. Here's what he says to her in verse 11. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz has heard of Ruth's faith in the Lord and of her love for Naomi. And he prays this prayer over her. He prays in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. That might sound odd. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May a full reward be given you. I think it's completion language. I think it's, Boaz could, could say, it could be translated here, may the Lord finish the work he started in you. May the Lord finish the work he started through you. And he tells her, the, Lord's, the Lord repay you, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is, this is secure language. This is protection providing language. He uses this picture of a, of a mother bird bringing in her, her babies under her wings to protect them and provide for them and look out for them. She's saying, Ruth, You've done, the Lord is doing the same thing to you. And for those of you in this room that you trust in the Lord, you take refuge in him, hear this as an encouragement as well. You are secure in him. He is faithful and trustworthy, and he has not brought you this far just to leave you. He has not brought you this far just to forget about you. He's working. He's, he's doing things. This is why we, we're, we're using Psalm 91 this morning where it says in verse 3, he will cover you with his pinions. Those were like the outer parts of the wings. And under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And Ruth's time with Boaz ends with this overwhelming result of his kindness, abundant kindness towards her. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. All day she was out there. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. We don't know for sure how, exactly how much an ephah is, but I think the story makes it clear. It, it, we should probably hear it this way. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. 
And for us, we're sitting there like, okay, I, I don't know what that is. I'm not sure how much that is. But I think the point is, it's a lot for one day's worth of work. It's a lot. We're starting to get this feeling that maybe God's doing something here. We're starting to get this feeling that he's working, he's providing, he's protecting, his plans are still unfolding, and he's bringing it fullness to their emptiness. And the great reversal that was hinted at at the end of chapter 1, maybe that great reversal has started. We saw this conversation with Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Boaz have this interaction, and I told you the story would be bookended by another conversation with Ruth and Naomi. Here comes the second part. Let's jump to verse 18. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So Ruth returns to Naomi. She's carrying all this grain. She's carrying the leftover food from the meal. Huge abundance of stuff that she's bringing back to her. And Naomi's reaction is awesome in verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She says, where in the world did you end up today? How did you come about all this? How did you come across all this food? And then the next part of the verse, read through it slowly with me. If you know the story, try to forget it and jump back into the middle of it and just hear it as if it's unfolding because I think you're meant to feel some tension of somebody, like just answer the question. Naomi said, whose field were you in? Look with me at, at verse uh, 19, middle of verse 19. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today, it, it feels a little bit like at the end of a, a reality show or the end of a game show where they're about to announce the winner. You know, there's always that ridiculously long pause, and the winner of American Idol is You're sitting there, there's that tense music. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're just trying to drag it to the end of their time slot for the show, and you're, you're hanging on. You've already come back from a commercial break. You're, and, they, and they announce it, and that's, that's what this is. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. He didn't have to say that. She could have just said, he could have said, she said, she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, Ruth likely said this in a pretty matter-of-fact way. I don't think she said, the man's name was Boaz. Are you sitting down? Are you ready for this? I, I don't, I, I think he was probably like, uh, his name was, I, I think like Boaz or something? I'm not sure. Because I, I still, don't, we don't have any, Hint that she knew the significance of this yet in the story. And Naomi starts to connect the dots. She says in verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. These would be Significant words coming out of anyone's mouth, but they're especially meaningful coming from Naomi. She just said at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, she told the women of her town, don't call me Naomi, 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And then here, in chapter 2, verse 20, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Is she talking about Boaz's kindness or the Lord's kindness? Yes. It's the Lord's kindness through Boaz. And she says, the Lord's, the Lord whose kindness, that, that word kindness is a really important word in the Old Testament. Other places you see it translated as steadfast love or loving kindness. When God describes his name to his people, the Lord, Yahweh, he's, the first thing he mentions is I'm a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. God's loyalty to his people is completely unshakable. He is, Naomi's saying, he is lovingly committed to keeping his promises. And, and what Naomi does here is she beautifully sums up the truth of everything that's happening. She doesn't all of a sudden begin to understand why all this grief has happened in her life over the past 10 years. It's not that all these dots are connected. She doesn't claim to understand that, but she does see God's loving kindness. And her view here is an encouraging example for us because here you see this intersection of the map and where she is on the ground. We can't always see God's purposes, but we can always see his character. We can't always see what God is doing, but we can always see who he is. This is why we don't view God through the lens of our circumstances, but we view our circumstances through the lens of who God is. Those are two different experiences. If, I, if I'm viewing God through the lens of my circumstances, I might as well determine who God is based on the weather. But if I have this solid understanding of who the Lord is and that that does not change, he does not change, I carry those unchanging truths with me into constantly changing circumstances. And even though I don't know what God is doing or why he's doing it most of the time, I know that as one pastor said, God is up to 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. And he's good and he's loving and he's faithful and he's powerful, and he's compassionate, and he's just, and he's holy, and he's merciful, and none of those things ever change. And then Naomi puts one more little piece in it, and she fills Ruth in on why this is so incredible. She says, this is the end of verse 20, Naomi also said to her, the man, that man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is why this interaction brings Ruth and Naomi, this story, full circle up to this point. Now we get to see why chapter 2, verse 1 is so important. We get to see why the author said, hey, keep in mind, Naomi has a relative named Boaz. Here's why he told us that. Because this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. A redeemer was a relative who had the means and the responsibility to rescue needy family members out of poverty or out of slavery even. Able, he, somebody who's able to buy them back out of their hunger, out of their vulnerability, out of their neediness. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, notice she says 
Boaz is one of our redeemers. This is not a guaranteed solution. There's still a lot of questions about how God's going to keep his promises. But we see hints of hope. We see hints of hope. And the chapter ends, verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young women until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Remember, this is the time of the judges. It was not a safe time to live. Then verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Verse 23 there at the end, that she kept close to the young women, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. The end of chapter 1 said they showed up in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. But now the Lord has provided for them through Boaz, through two different harvest seasons. The Lord's provision is abundant. It's, it's on top. But the story doesn't feel finished yet, does it? We still can't fully grasp what God is doing. Up to this point, we only have two chapters worth of the map. But we're getting a clearer and clearer picture of God's character. The Lord's gov- loving kindness does not stop with Ruth. In fact, it's just getting started. Remember, the story of Ruth here is the story behind the story. It's the story behind the story of Christmas. And we don't have to only look to the story of Ruth to find truth to cling to. We ultimately look to the story of Christ, of the gospel. That when Christ was born over 2,000 years ago, almost no one grasped what God was doing. When this baby boy was born to a young girl in Bethlehem, just another baby, just another first-time mom maybe, it was nothing of the sorts. Because God was beginning his work of reversal. He was about to rescue the whole world. The point of Christmas is that God shows his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his steadfast love to us by generously giving us himself to rescue our souls. And you hear this truth in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That display of his kindness to people like us who don't deserve it assures us that his steadfast love will not fail. He hasn't given us a map that we have to find and then unroll. We can't see all that he's doing. We can't see all that he will do. And we're going to live out our lives with a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainties. But as we live daily life on the ground, God has given us truths and stories in his word to show us who he was so that we'll also see that's who he is right now. What the map of our lives, my life, your life, the the life of this church looks like, that's completely unpredictable to us. But when you learn about the Lord from his word, you see that the character of the author of the map is very predictable. He's always going to be who he is. He will be who he is now and forever. Let's pray together.